Okay, we are in chapter 14 of Revelation. We started last week, and I, I realize I didn't really get too far in the text that we were looking at, so we're going to go back and recover some of the ground. Uh, but in this particular section... There are three angels that are sent forth uh, from heaven, and they have uh, messages. And we began to look at this last week. Verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. And and then another angel, a second one followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Uh, She has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. And another angel, a third one, followed, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead, or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and for their deeds uh, follow them. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle and another angel The one who has power over fire came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. We talked a lot about the gospel last week. It's funny how it is, like I said before, the the, the term gospel is, this is the only place in Revelation you find it. And we went into detail about what the gospel is. it's, It's unusual here that it's referred to as the eternal gospel. Now, when we think about it, we think about it in our own context, and we know that the gospel is eternal and the fact that it, that it will be unending. 
In other words, everlasting life is life that goes on forever. There's no end that comes to it. But I want to challenge us with the idea this morning that really means more than that. That the gospel, I think a lot of people believe, is just kind of some alternate plan that God came up with at some point when things were not going the way that he thought they were going to go as far as mankind and, and you know, the fall into sin and all that. Maybe caught him off guard and the gospel is just kind of a solution to a problem that man created when he, he did what he did. Uh, that sort of thing. But what we're talking about here, guys, is this. is Remember this. God is not... not Controlled by time at all. God exists outside of time. God created time. God is not confined by time in any way, shape, or form. And we need to realize something. The, the, the whole essence of the gospel has been in the mind of God for all of eternity. It's not just some thought that popped in some day along the way. He's always known it. And always will know it. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that is. He's not confined to the same kind of things that we are. It's what he's intended. This passage is a passage about judgment. There's no doubt about it. We've seen it's a recurring Themes here through all through the book of Revelation. Uh, and we talked last week about how you could classify people into three different groups based upon the gospel. Uh, the first one would be those people that, that do exist in the world, that will exist in the world today, that will die without ever hearing the gospel spoken one time in their whole lifetime. And if we think about all of history, there probably would be a significant amount of, of human population that has been upon the earth that, had, that never heard the gospel. And one of the reasons for that is very often Christians don't share the gospel as freely and as often as we ought to. And we also consider the idea that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, that even though that's true, it doesn't mean that they're innocent people and they're going to escape God's judgment seat because that's not true. Because what Paul argues for in Romans chapter 1 is this, is that the creation itself is sufficient to bring people to a knowledge and understanding that there is a God who created all of this. To seek him out. To worship him. There's another class of people and that is those who hear the gospel. But they choose to reject it. They don't accept it. They reject it. And we know that they will be judged. And they will be judged the most severely. But then, thankfully, there's a group of people who hear the gospel and they receive it. They accept it. They abide by it. These are those who have the seal of God upon them. The name of the Father and the name of the Son on their forehead. In a manner that only God sees it. That God knows his people. As we were reading this morning, Jesus knows his sheep and his sheep know him. There is no doubt who they are.
these angels, they're calling out, and they're calling out with, with loud voices so that everyone on earth can hear. So there's no one that can come and can say, I just didn't know anything. Verse 8, we talked about this too. Uh, fallen, fallen as Babylon the Great. It's the second angel coming forth with this message. And this is the message is that Babylon has fallen. As we go through the book, we're going to find this is going to become a more and more prominent theme. Babylon is symbolic of the wicked and unsaved world. So we need to remember something. The gospel entails a couple of things. One of those is promise of salvation, the way of salvation, right? But at the same time, it is a gospel of judgment. That judgment is coming. And there will come a time when judgment will prevail. Wickedness and evilness in the world is almost like a disease. It spreads. It's hard to find a place that, that doesn't exist. Some places in very, very great measure. The third angel comes and makes this announcement. It's an announcement of judgment, of God's judgment coming upon them. If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God. God's wrath. When was the last time that you heard a sermon preached on the wrath of God? Maybe a hundred years ago it was a very regular thing. Today not so popular in uh, in churches. Uh, you know, we are that uh, touchy-feely, kind of make-me-feel-good kind of generation and uh, and that sort of thing. And very often we steer away from passages that talk about wrath, uh, God's wrath and God's judgment upon people. Not very, very popular topics in the church today. But there's no way of getting around the idea that's so clear, and that is most of this passage has to do with God's judgment falling upon unbelievers, upon people. Verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. It's hard to conceive of punishment that goes on for eternity. Right? Punishment, we, we, we typically have in, in, in our mindset, in our practice, is that punishment goes on for a time, but then there's an end to it. Once the lesson's learned, then the punishment stops. So why is it that the torment that will be suffered by those who are unbelieving will go on forever? There's only one possible explanation to it, and that is this. is that, that, that We've seen this in the book. Is that over and over again, as judgment comes, people don't repent. 
In other words, what we're talking about people, we're talking about people here who never repent. They never repent for their sins. Even as time goes by in their torment, they endure the torment over and over and over again. And, and, uh, and I would not think it's too much of a stretch to think that it even gets worse maybe as time goes on. Because what you find with these folks is their heart is not softened. Their heart doesn't break. Their heart gets harder. Their hatred of God increases. It doesn't in- decrease. So it goes on and on forever. Now let me ask you something. Is there anybody that you know that you would just delight to hear is going to suffer through something like this? When we read passages like this, what we do, and this is a sin within us, we kind of conclude that God is kind of on the harsh side. Sometimes we almost want to say, aren't you making a little bit too much out of all of this? And the reason for that is this, is that we see sin as little. In particular, very often, we see our own sin as little. It's so easy for us to justify our own sin. It really is. But remember that every single sin represents cosmic rebellion against God. It's a direct affront to God and His sovereignty. Every sin that you, I would consider to be little, teeny, tiny things. Understand that it's a mindset. It's a heart set. It's not just one or two acts. It's the heart of everything. And here's the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God, who persevere in their faith. I think we talked about this a little bit last week, and that is really, it's, you know, we talk about perseverance of the saints, it's the pea and tulip. As if we have the power, we have the ability to pers- persevere in our faith on our own. It's better explained as what's called preservation of the saints. That by the power of God that we are preserved in our salvation. That's why we can have confidence in our salvation. Because it doesn't depend upon our own ability to keep ourselves saved. If it did, let me ask you something. If, if your salvation depended upon your ability to keep yourself saved, could you possibly stay saved? The answer is no. The reason you and I can have confidence in our salvation is simply because it's by God's power that we are sustained in a state of salvation. His promise to us of eternal life. If it can cease to be eternal, then it is not eternal life. And only the power of God can accomplish that. Not we ourselves. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Fears or death is nothing for us to fear. It really isn't. 
Maybe there's some people in this room that are just terrified of the process of dying. And, and let me tell you, I, I, I don't want to die the way my father died. They went on for months and months and months and months and months and months and years. Like most of you, I'd like for it to be really quick. And to me, the ideal thing would be to go to sleep one night and not wake up the next morning. But we know that all of that is determined by God. So we must trust even something like this into his very capable hands. Verse 14, there is a shifting in the scene here. Looked and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Now, I don't think anyone in the room here doubts this is a picture of Jesus. Very often, when, when we're talking about passages that re, in regard to the second advent, the second coming of Christ, he comes on the clouds of glory. Daniel, one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of glory. This is a picture of Jesus coming. And another angel came out of the temple crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap because the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe. There's two types of harvesting that take place in the last part of this passage. One of those is the ingathering of the people of God, the ingathering of the flock. This is the first harvest that takes place. Sickle is used in both, both cases. Now, I'm not a farmer. I've never used a sickle in my whole lifetime, but I've seen videos of people doing it and, and, and movies with people doing it. And I can imagine that it would be very tiring because what you're talking about is, is this knife kind of implement that is usually curved and is very sharp because it's got to be really sharp to be able to cut the sheaves of grain and to cut the clusters of, of grapes off the grapevine. Uh, but the idea here is this, is Jesus is going to come through and he's going to reap. He's going to gather all of his people together. Very much in tune with what you find in the Olivet Discourse. There it's described as him sending forth his angels to the four corners of the earth to, to gather all of his people together. See, what I would say to you is a picture of the, the biblical picture of the rapture. That which takes place, not before the great tribulation, but that which takes place at the time of the second coming of Christ. Jesus gathering his people that are living here still in the world at that time. That's what this is a picture of. And let me tell you, there's some things you can't say definitively about Revelation, but I'm pretty doggone confident that that's exactly what is going on here.
Verse 17, and another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. So now the seconding harvesting is going to take place. And an angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, put in your sickle, sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because the grapes are ripe. This is a harvesting for judgment. God's wrath. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters of the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. I was in Greece many years ago for almost a month. And uh, in, in, in where I was was a remote village, actually in Crete. And there were olive groves and there were uh, vineyards all over the place. And the guys would get up early in the morning and they would go out and they would work in the, the orchard and... Uh, in the groves, and they would come back after several hours and eat the biggest meal of the day, a big breakfast. And they would go back out, and they would work in those fields and groves and things uh, again for a good part of the day, and just come back in later and have a light dinner. But and they had a they had a siesta kind of thing where about one o'clock, everybody in the whole place, the whole place shut down, everything in the village shut down. Everybody went to bed and took a nap for two or three hours and got up and they would go back out later on. And a lot of it had to do with the fact it was so hot. They did it to avoid being out in the sun at the, the worst part of the daytime. But we know that very often grapes are used for making wine. They have been for a very long time. We don't even know when people started making wine, but there's been wine made from grapes for a very long part of the history of the world. And we know that to make the wine, you have to separate the juice from the rest of the fruit, right? Uh, and we know the typical way of doing that is to throw the, the grapes into a vat, and, and sometimes people stomp around on the grapes. And, and, and so the juice is squirted out of the fruit and you know, gathers in the vat, and there, there's an opening in the vat where they can drain all the grape juice out and... You know, when things began to develop, you know, things become a little bit more modernized and engineered than there were screw-type mechanisms that they would use that were built out of wood and metal to begin with to, to uh, squash the grapes to get the juice. This press, this wine press, is the wine press of the wrath of God. Not your typical wine press. Takes place outside the city. And it doesn't talk about grape juice coming out. It talks about blood coming out. What we're talking about here basically is we're not talking about literal grapes. We're not talking about clusters of grapes. We're talking about people. People. 
being trodden down by the wrath of God. Blood. Lots of blood. Can you imagine standing here and there being, I guess, maybe three feet of blood stretching for 200 miles? I mean, that's a huge volume of blood. Right? It's almost, it's, I mean, it's so much blood you can't even imagine that. So, what does that mean? Are we supposed to understand that that literally is what's going to take place? And just remember that Revelation is full of all kinds of symbols. But what I would say to you ultimately, it means is this is that we're talking about a very significant percentage of humanity. It's not like 99.999% of people are going to be saved and wind up in, in, in the eternal kingdom of Jesus. That in the end, there's going to be a large percentage of mankind who does not make the mark, who suffers God's judgment. Very much in line with the words of Jesus. That many are called and few are chosen. And many, how many take the broad way, and how few enter in through the gate. Lots of people. Probably the majority of people. And we read that and we think about that and we wonder how could it possibly be? But we need to bring things into perspective. And that is ultimately, it's what we all deserve. Every one of us. To be among those. It's what our sin has earned for us. And you may see yourself as just a little bitty sinner, but if you see yourself as a little bitty sinner, you really don't see yourself, you don't know yourself really at all. Our sin is a great burden. Our sin is a humongous, unbelievable burden. Just remember this. If Jesus came to the world to save Jenny, and Jenny only, her sin would be sufficient to require everything that he did. In other words, to become a man for her, to live for her, to live that righteous life for her, to die for her on the cross. 
That's how bad the sin is in every one of us, that it requires the life, the breath, the death of the Son of God himself to atone for it. Our sin is far greater than we can even begin to imagine. Every single one of us. We tend to still think of ourselves as those really kind of good people. Right? It's so easy to do that. I mean, how often do we still look around at other folks and and come to the conclusion, well, look what so-and-so is doing, at least I don't do that. Do you have any besetting sins? you have any particular sins that you just, you, 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 every now and then you think that I finally got that behind me? You know, I'm done with that sin, and the next thing you know, you're doing it again, and you're doing it maybe even to a worse level than you ever have before. The fact is, is we all desperately, not just a little bit, not just a little tiny, tiny bit, not just even a big bit, we, we, we unimaginably large amount, we need Jesus, every one of us. He is the only way, he is the only truth, he is the only life. Everything else is death. What we have earned for ourselves is death. Eternal death. Eternal dying. God is a God of judgment, and he will bring every deed to judgment. Every single sin that has ever been committed by anybody will come to a judgment. The question is, has Jesus borne that judgment? Or will the person bear it? There's some people who believe that Jesus just died for everybody to save everybody and that somehow mysteriously all people will be saved. But guys and gals, that is not Bible. Maybe wishful thinking. But it's not the Bible. That there is a judgment day coming. And it will be swift and it will be severe. The problem is this, there's a lot of problems here, but one of those is you and I, just, we just still have a very, very small view of what sin is. I would never have the guts to say this, but uh, when I was in seminary, one of the professors I had, the first theology class I, I took, he said this in class one day, and he, he said it for effect. He wanted to see how we were, were going to respond to it, and he said this. He said, basically... That by the time you're glorified, in other words, by the time God perfects you and you really see sin for what sin is, you see your own sin for what it was, as it really is, that you will rejoice to see your sinful mother thrown into hell for all of eternity because she hasn't repented. Now, how does that grab you? It shocked the bejeebies out of all of us that he would even say such a thing. But he did it for effect. Because he wanted us to see 
how different our perspective will be when we are finally perfected compared to what it is even now. Sin is not little. Sin is unbelievably big. And it's more particularly grievous when the people of God commit it. Not less. Those who should know better. And they do it anyway. But it's covered by Jesus. The Father was pleased, pleased to bruise him. You know, if we look at the cross, we should get a lot of things from it. But one of those is this, is this is really how much God hates sin. How bad it is. That he did what he did. In the very death of Jesus itself should be the greatest measure of what God's concept of sin is. How bad it is. That the Father would bruise the Son to do away with our sins. Now, some people look at this and they just see judgment, judgment, judgment. But what you and I should see here is this underlying theme of the love of God that we've experienced, that we know. Does the gospel amaze you? I mean, have you heard it so many times now in your lifetime that it just don't even think too much about it anymore? Maybe every now and then. I tell you some things we could do for ourselves that would benefit us and everybody else around us. And one of those is this, is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over to yourself again and again and again and again every day. Every hour, every minute.